You're listening to TSG Time with Patrick Fowler and Doug Spaulding, the show that tackles all things performance measurement in a half hour or less. You can expect interviews with industry legends and in-depth discussions with authors on topics that will be appearing in upcoming issues of the Journal of Performance Measurement. It's now time to welcome your hosts, Pat and Doug. Hi, everyone. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us for Episode 7 of TSG Time. I'm Doug Spaulding. And I'm Pat Fowler. Today, we're joined by Elska Vandebert. Elska holds a master's degree in econometrics and operations research from the University of Maastricht. After joining Ortec Finance in 1997, she held different roles within the company. She has worked together with many international clients in the performance measurement, attribution, and risk area. In 2006, Elska became product manager of Ortec Finance's performance and attribution solution. Elska's current position is managing director of the investment performance group within Ortec Finance. She's responsible for all product-related activities, including new implementations, support, and sales, as well as the investment performance service that offers a fully outsourced solution for institutional investors around the globe. She's also a member of the company's management team. Elska regularly writes articles and speaks at conferences about investment performance-related topics. Elska is a CFA charter holder. Welcome, Elska. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Pat. And well, I'm really honored that you wanted to have me on your monthly podcast. Um, I really must say it's a very nice initiative to have such a podcast. And I think it's another example that shows how TSG really remains innovative and always finding new ways and media to engage with the performance specialist. So yeah, really well done. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Elsie. We're, we're, we're grateful to have you here. And uh... So to begin with, uh, can you tell us something about yourself that most people would know about you? Um, you know, maybe start on the business side. It's probably not a surprise that I've been with Ortec Finance, given that I've been there for over 25 years now. So uh, people probably know me from that and also my engagement with uh, performance measurement, performance attribution. Uh, but what many people probably don't know is that I very recently also took on a second position in the company, and I'm now actually managing our climate and ESG team. Um, and I must say it's quite refreshing uh, because it's a very new playing field for me. Well, obviously, ESG uh, always has been on our radar also from an exposed analytical uh, point of view. And I also did participate in this CFA course on ESG investing. But now, really being on the forefront is quite a new experience. And the solutions we offer really focus on quantifying any kind of financial risk that results out of climate change, and also consulting our clients on potential ways to hedge against those risks. And I must say, as a performance specialist, you're really used to everything being deterministic, uh, very measurable, very precise, up to I don't know how many decimals. And this area is quite different. Um, yeah, you have to come up with plausible climate changes, uh, those scenarios. They keep on changing because research is rapidly developing. So, yeah, we have to stay on top of all of that and then translating it also in uh, economic scenarios uh, and models. So it's it's mm -hmm. quite different, but I, I really enjoy the challenge. Um, but I have to admit, and I'll be the first to admit, that I'm nowhere close to become a specialist in that area as I have been uh, in the field of performance attribution. But it's nice. Um, 
Yeah, maybe on a more personal note, I might surprise some people that I'm actually a keen gardener. And I would have really oh. loved the people if you would have predicted that 10 years ago. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I am. <laughs> During the whole COVID pandemic, uh, my husband and I bought a plot of land and we built our own house. And at least for Dutch standards, the plot is pretty large. So we also have a sizable garden that I need to maintain, but I actually found that I enjoy it. And it's, yeah, it's also a way to help me relax and get on my thoughts. So I never would have guessed so myself, but I actually am a gardener now. Yeah, very nice. That's great. The, the worst part is weeding, right? <laughs> uh, the worst part is the weeding, for sure. Yes. And it never <laughs> stops. <laughs> no, no. So um, you work with asset owners all over the world. Do you, do you find many uh, differences between asset owners and asset management firms? Um, yeah, if I focus a bit on asset owners, because that is uh, from at least our uh, solution, our main target group. So that's where we are most exposed to. Um, there's obviously a lot of similarities between them, but also differences when it comes to uh, the actual requirements they have from uh, analytical tools. Well, to start with the similarities, they all have this very long investment horizon. They have a very clear, uh, determined target when it comes to return targets. They all have to manage multi-asset, multi-currency portfolios. But I think the main differences when it comes to their requirements is in the way they operate uh, their business. Because some of the asset owners, as you're probably aware, basically do an ALM study, define their strategic asset allocation, and then leave all their investment decisions to a fiduciary manager or an outsourced CIO. Uh, but others might have complete internal asset management teams that run all uh, their own investment operations. And then, of course, there's this group in between that do work with a variety of external asset managers. So they typically typically tend to uh, select the best in class there. And then on top of that, manage overlay programs to steer their asset allocations or steer their allocations over regions, currencies, um, interest rate durations, those kind of things. Um, mm -hmm. So when you look at the requirements when it comes to the performance measurement attribution capabilities, it's also different depending on the way uh, they operate. So it could simply focus on yeah, explaining the SAA return versus the actual return. Um, but for most of them, it's really about evaluating the kind of strategies they have and how much value was added uh, by those strategies. So that could be those earlier mentioned overlays, like the dynamic tactical asset allocation, duration overlay, currency overlays. But some of them also have liability matching strategies. Um, and in those cases, of course, interest rate hedges and fixed income type of analytics are much more uh, important and even dominant uh, in their requirements. And of course, when they have internal asset management capabilities, um, yeah, their requirements also extend into analytics for portfolio managers and investment teams. So in those instances, the requirements are actually pretty similar to what you would see at a, a regular or commercial uh, asset manager. Right. You, you, you touched on a, a lot there. Uh, one thing that you know uh, TSG is known for is, is our verification and the GIP standards. Um, obviously, that's a de facto standard for asset managers. Are you seeing much interest from your asset owner clients in the GIP standards? I feel I'm going to disappoint you a little bit here, but <laughs> if I'm honest, the answer is no. Um, and maybe one side mark there, our client base primarily in Europe, APEC, and uh, in Canada, so not so much in the US. But if I look at the asset owners we work with, there's 
very little to no interest. And I think it's also because the prevailing idea is still that GIPS standards are useful only for external reporting and for fair comparison amongst competitors, amongst other funds. And yeah, for asset owners we deal with, this is usually not their prime focus. And Mm-hmm. Yeah, on top of that, there's often in every country, there's a regulator that also gives them like uh, prescriptions on how to calculate their performance numbers and what to report upon. Um, so yeah, Gibbs is not like first on the list, to be honest. Interesting. Now, right. now, what aspects of performance do you find your clients having the most challenges with? Um, I've... I, well, over time, of course, it's, it's different topics, but what's always been a challenge and remains to be a challenge is uh, the impact of currency movements and then also the currency hedging strategies uh, that they deal with. Um, and again, maybe different in the US where the US dollar is a very dominant currency. We also work with asset owners that have like uh, home currencies that are just like small currencies like Swedish crowns, Australian dollars. So for them, yeah, being exposed to all those foreign currencies is a major impact uh, on their investment return. Um, and like I said, that that has been a challenge um, ever since I started and still is. Um, but over the recent years, I would say the last five to 10 years, uh, another major headache has become uh, private assets or unlisted uh, assets. And it's not only because, you know, valuations come in late, it's very hard to find appropriate benchmarks, but it's also not easy to integrate this asset category into your overall fund performance and say anything meaningful uh, about it. Because if you look at your asset allocation decisions, they really get distorted because, yeah, those asset categories tend to be very illiquid. You might have commitments already, you might, might have calls coming in for additional cash. So that requires you to hold assets in much more liquid uh, asset categories and not being able to yeah, fill in your asset allocation in the way you potentially would like to. So then the challenge really becomes, how can you adjust the evaluation of your investment decisions? Uh, how can you take this into account in a proper way? And those are the kind of topics we have been working on a lot uh, over the last couple of years uh, with some of our clients. Just Yeah, if you keep in mind that even... If I look at the APEC region and specific in Asia, it's not uncommon for asset owners to have about one third of their portfolios in private assets nowadays. So yeah, it's, it's a really huge portion uh, of their portfolio. Now in 2018, David Spaulding interviewed you for the Journal of Performance Measurement. And at that time, uh, Pearl 8 was about to be released. Now, five years later, Pearl 9 is here. Can you tell us a little bit about the Pearl system and some of the changes that have been made with the new release? Yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe to avoid any further confusion, of course, between Pearl 8 and Pearl 9, there has been multiple releases labeled like 8.1, 8.2, up until 8.5. Okay. So it's not that we haven't released anything mm-hmm. in the last five years, but we always start with a new number when something major uh, has changed in the system. And that's definitely the case with Pearl 9, if you compare to Pearl 8. But both versions actually are part of what we call the uh, uh, evolution of the product. And yeah, that all started about six years ago and has now been completed uh, with the Pearl 9. 
Um, and where in the pool eight version, a lot of the changes were really visible to the end user because the focus was on user interfaces on workflow. So everything uh, the user get exposed to on a daily basis. This is different in the pool nine uh, because most of the changes are actually in the calculation engine. So the core uh, of the model, we have really improved the efficiency of the calculations and you have to think about the speed of the calculations, but also the required data storage uh, and all the API capabilities to, yeah, start calculations to get results out of uh, results out of the system um, so that really also helps our clients to facilitate the integration of pull with any other system they might have or fit into their um, IT infrastructure. Uh, what we also did in Pool 9 is updating the reporting libraries. Uh, so that's yeah, really refresh and up-to-date look. So something the end clients actually will see. Uh, so it's not all underneath the hood, but the majority of the release was underneath the hood. Um, and in the next release that's coming up at the end of the year, so that's called 9.1, <laughs> we actually will completely revamp our on-the-fly uh, attribution capabilities, also making use of all the work we've done under the hood when it comes to yeah, uh, the calculation models uh, and all the API uh, capabilities. So that's a real nice milestone coming ahead as well. Yeah, definitely. Great. Now, you are a 2002 Dietz Award winner for the article titled Decision-Based Evaluation of the Performance of Hierarchically Structured Investment Process, which is co-authored by Yarun Geenan, Mark Heemskirk, and Mihil Harima. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this article and the writing research process involved? I know this was written quite a while ago. but <laughs> so I would say, wow, it's uh, over 20 years ago, so it feels like you're testing my memory here. Uh, but maybe a bit more serious. Um, yeah, we, we weren't really planning on writing an article, uh, but we actually decided to do so once we realized that our approach to performance attribution was actually significantly different than uh, what was the mainstream approach at the time. So as I mentioned before, we've always worked with and uh, for asset managers, uh, actually right from the start of our company, and therefore all our focus when it comes to attribution always has been on the top-down uh, decision framework. Because that's yeah the kind of decision framework that's also deployed by those investment organizations. So this means we were always um, asked to explain what are the main drivers of performance and not simply by looking at you know a single allocation and selection effect, but really helping our clients to disentangle all the different decisions they make and also the order uh, in which decisions are made. Uh, by different teams actually within uh, the organization. So in the most common setup, you can think, you know, there's a long-term target, they want to match liabilities or they want to achieve an X percent return above CPI. So you have this target, you translate an SAA, and then you have a whole range of tactical and operational decisions following this, like, you know, TAA, different allocations, selections of your manager, different investment styles, maybe some ESG considerations you take into account nowadays. But there can also be some benchmark mismatches and yeah, all kinds of different either implicit or explicit decisions that you make. And what we've done actually is we developed a framework that you could capture all those different decisions and then quantify how you want to measure uh, the added value of e yeah, each and every individual uh, decision. 
And after some time, we actually realized that yeah, maybe the formulas weren't that unique, but the, our approach and the framework that we offered was actually quite unique. So yeah, that's when we decided to write down uh, this approach and also submit it to the uh, Journal of Performance Measurement. And yeah, you know, it did get a lot of attention. It was very well recognized, I must say. And yeah, of course, it was also rewarded with the Deeds Award, which was for us a great recognition of yeah the work we have been doing over those years. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. So that was 2002. Have you been working on any uh, new writing projects or preparing for any speaking engagements? Well, the actual writing has never been my strength. So usually I leave that to my much, much smarter uh, colleagues. Um, So basically every other year we have been submitting and publishing articles. Uh, I think last year we actually submitted another article called Practical Guideline for Funding or Solvency Ratio Attribution that also won uh, a DEETS award. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we actually presented, or my colleagues presented that at the PMAR conference in May. Um, So that was really nice. And at the moment we're again working on some very interesting research that I wouldn't be surprised if, again, yeah, it results in research papers that we might submit. So one of them is really all about ESG attribution and not only in the financial uh, context, but also in ESG scoring uh, context. And another research project we're engaged with together with uh, one of our partners, Burgess, is really on um, relevant attribution for private equity uh, investments. So, yeah, mm-hmm. m- most likely we'll write something uh, on those topics. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and for speaking engagements, I actually do have quite a few coming up in August. Um, so busy month. We have our own Ortec Finance roundtables that we organize in the APEC region. So going to do a bit of a roadshow in Singapore, Sydney, Melbourne. Uh, and in this roundtable, we have a number of topics, but yeah, I'll explain how we believe that decision-based attribution is a key element in any investment process and how it can potentially help investors to improve their investment decision making. Um, also cool. in August, I'm in a panel. Uh, it's on currency performance and it's at a risk and performance summit in Sydney. And yeah, we have seen a lot of growth actually in the APEC region over the last year. So um, yeah, a lot of engagements actually are in that region. And we are also on the verge of opening another office uh, in Singapore after we opened the Melbourne office in uh, 2020. That's great. That's great. So you mentioned the roundtable. You and I met at the Performance Measurement Forum uh, a few years ago. <laughs> we won't <laughs> say how many. And uh, we've been to many, many meetings together over the years in different cities and locations. Um, do you have a favorite memory or story uh, from the Performance Measurement Forum experience that you've had? Well, I have a lot of very nice memories and a lot <laughs> of stories, but I don't think many of them are suitable to share. On this podcast, <laughs> um, but one one very vivid memory I have is actually from one of the first uh, uh, forum I went to uh, because for me that was really an eye opener that you could bring together what I would consider competitors, so people from mm-hmm. different asset management companies, but also people from different vendors. Um, but still, they're in the same room and they were very meaningful and very open. Uh, this so yeah the people that are joining the forum are just first and foremost you know performance specialists and really keen to bring their knowledge but also their challenges to the table so it is what i would call a give and take setup and i've really appreciated that uh, over the years and as you might yeah. have noticed Patrick, my role has changed a little bit so it's much more managerial nowadays and business development so 
I tend to sense my colleagues that are still more on the forefront of performance measurements. Um, sure. But I always get yeah. very, very jealous when they come back and they have all those nice stories, <laughs> especially about what they did in the evening, of course. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a really, really nice group to join. And yeah, you learn a lot, but it's also a foundation for, I would say, long-lasting professional friendships uh, over the years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right now, this next question came from a listener. How do performance functions differ between the U.S. and Europe? Ooh, that's actually a good question. Um, yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, we are, well, I have been in touch with a number of uh, performance teams in the U.S., but not as much as I have been in other parts of the world. So in the U.S., I would say my experience is a little bit limited. But from what I have seen, to me, it feels like the performance function is very much focused to what I would call external stakeholders. So reporting to your clients, reporting to prospects, but also regulatory reporting. And when I look at their European counterparts, I think their like prime focus usually is more on the internal organization. So providing meaningful analytics to their investment organization, their portfolio managers, the investment teams to and really be part uh, of the investment process, trying to yeah, improve and uh, play a role in the internal uh, processes. But yeah, like I said, it, it could be because of my limited observations, but that's at least the, the difference I have noticed. Excellent. Now, before we move on to the lightning round, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Um... Yeah, maybe one thing, because I've been in this industry for quite a long time, and I I really would like to stress definitely for the more younger listeners out there, people that just started in this industry, that, yeah, it's, it's a really nice job because it teaches you everything about that goes on in an investment organization. Uh, you learn so many different elements of investing, different asset classes, different strategies, and I sometimes feel the profession is underrated. This is not, you know, acknowledged enough. So yeah, don't be held back by that feeling because I really think it's a good opportunity. And if you are, you know, part of a good performance team or manage to build up a good performance team, you can really be the backbone of your investment organization and helping them to improve uh, the investment processes. So yeah, I feel it's really vital that performance teams claim that position and really uh, are proud uh, of what they deliver. And yeah, sometimes I miss that attitude a little bit and uh, yeah, it's not necessary. It's a shame. Awesome. Absolutely. Now on to the lightning round. So you're called to do something brave, but your fear is real. What's the first thing you do? Usually I just go for it. I'm typically more a doer than a thinker. And sometimes I really regret it, but I mean, this <laughs> attitude also brought me some positive. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. Great Definitely. answer. What's the, give us a title of a film or a movie that you really loved. <laughs> well, I'm not big on movies or series, but if I would name one, it would be Pulp Fiction. I actually like most of the Quentin Tarantini movies because, you know, the catchy dialogues, this weird kind of humor, and definitely the soundtrack that does it uh, for me. Nice. Yep. What's on your nightstand right now? 
well, next to my alarm clock, uh, there's this whole pile of books that I still intend to read. Uh, right now, I'm finishing a book called The People Next Door from Tony Parsons, which is more what I would call holiday literature. Yeah. Uh, when I'm finished with that, I plan to continue with a book called Middlesex. It's quite, yeah, it's been around for a couple of years, written by Jeffrey Eugenides. Um, and it has been on my nice hand for some time. So I really sh- should start reading it. I feel. Yeah, that's an excellent book. I, I really loved it. I read it years ago. I should actually probably reread that. That's <laughs> very good. Very good choice. Thanks. So you you mentioned holidays, Elska. What's your favorite thing to do in, in the summer or on holiday? Um, well, going on holiday, definitely going to the south of Europe, especially when it's Dutch summer like it is today with a lot of rain and a lot of wind. Um, and otherwise, if the weather allows in the Netherlands, I really love having, you know, barbecues or outdoor pizza parties with as many friends and families as we can gather. Uh, yeah, just spending time with them. Give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. Uh, well, one of the things that would come to mind is we, we have this little boat called a sloop. I don't even know if that's an English word, uh, but we use yep. it to yep. cruise. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we cruise the Dutch waterways and, of course, also the canals when you go to uh, cities um, in the Netherlands. And then we stop for a swim. We do some picnic and just enjoying the scenery. And whenever I'm on that boat and I travel a lot, I still travel a lot. And then it always strikes me how beautiful the Netherlands actually are and like, you know, try to live in the moment. And I especially, I really feel blessed if my family is there on the boat as well. And yeah, we all enjoy a really nice and good time. Very nice. That's awesome. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much, Elsie. I really appreciate yes, you. Thank you. You're spending some time with us today on the, on TSG time. Um, it was really fun. Uh, thank you for, for, for joining us. Um, and so I'm um, just going to leave it here. Uh, do you have any closing statements, Elsie, before we... No, just that I wish everybody a lovely summer and uh, I hope to see many of you in person soon. Great. Well, thank you and uh, stay tuned for for next month's guest on PSG Time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, Elska. Thank you. Thanks for listening to TSG Time. Remember to subscribe to the show by going to tsgperformance.com slash podcast so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, sign up for a free subscription to the Journal of Performance Measurement. TSG is the institutionally recognized boutique performance measurement consulting and GIPS standard specialist firm serving the investment industry. Visit us at tsgperformance.com.